day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women, uh, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not, uh, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with him, them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word. Last week, uh, we were at Easter morning at the tomb. Now we see Easter afternoon. And this story is so masterfully written among the finest in all of Scripture. The whole story is lightly comical. It plays up the irony that Cleopas and his companion think they're in the darkest tragedy of their lives when in fact they're in the midst of the greatest comedy. Do you see verse 17? When Jesus asks what they're discussing, they don't respond immediately. They hang their heads and look gloomy. They're, you know, it's the Charlie Brown walk that their heads are hung down. They're sad. And yet, little do they realize they're talking to their very Savior right here on the road. So there's this ironic comedy running through the whole story. But Luke also tells the story in terms that resonate with the life of faith, and so paint a picture of discipleship. The story's told in two scenes, what verse 35 calls when we were on the road or on the way and the breaking of bread. Jesus talks with them while they're on the way, and then in the book of Acts, six times the way is the title used to refer to this early faith, to Christianity. Disciples are those who are on the way. Well, as they're on the way, Jesus comes up alongside them and starts walking with them. He interjects himself into their conversation. But Luke tells us in verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They can't see Jesus for who he is, not because Jesus has somehow been transformed. You know, he used to have a beard and now he doesn't or something like that, but because their eyes were kept from seeing him. Their eyes were closed. Later in verse 31, towards the end of the story, their eyes were opened. Notice both times these are passive verbs. This is something that's happening to the disciples, not something that they themselves do. 
And almost certainly it's right to read this as being a divine act. That for some reason God closes their eyes initially and opens their eyes eventually. There's an important point even here before we get to our main points this morning. We don't come to see and know the risen Christ like we learn a scientific fact. He doesn't present himself to us to be measured and weighed and poked and prodded. Although he did present himself to Thomas to be poked and prodded. We learn facts about Jesus from the Bible, but we only come to know Jesus personally as he reveals himself to us. Well, why were these disciples kept from seeing Jesus? They need to be in the right position to see Jesus. They need to have the right framework, the right story to see Jesus. They need to be in the right position. I don't mean literally by better lighting, but they need to understand how Jesus fits into the big picture to see him rightly. Jesus gets co-opted, if you look around, into all sorts of agendas by all sorts of groups. Every political party has their version of Jesus, tailor-fit to their platform. It's strange how Jesus can seem to match up with every political party's platform, isn't it? But it's because they shed Jesus of all the witness to him of the Gospels and just pick out the elements that agree with what they already think. Likewise, in the ancient world, there were all sorts of ideas about what a Messiah should do. And to see a risen Messiah, they'd say, oh, ho, now it's time to get out the swords and drive out the Romans, or whatever their scheme was. But the risen and living Jesus will not be co-opted into your preset agendas. To see him as he truly is, you need to be in the right position. And so Jesus gently positions these disciples through questions, through teaching, even a bit of play-acting as they draw near the village. So the central question of this story then, which is so central to Christian discipleship as a whole, is how do we recognize the risen Christ? How do we see our risen Lord? How do we discern him? What sorts of practices are essential to seeing him? The story makes clear seeing the risen Christ is not always straightforward. And God is sovereign in revealing himself and Christ to us. And yet the story shows us some what the our tradition calls means of grace, some ordinary practices that disciples uh, uh, practice in order to see Christ rightly. And so I want you to see two basic things here, two basic practices. We see Jesus in Scripture, and we see Jesus at the table. We don't know if these two disciples are on the way to a village called... Uh, 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 we know that they're on the way to a village called Emmaus. We don't know if this is their home or perhaps just where they're staying on the way back. As they walk, they're talking and discussing the things that have happened. That is everything we read as a church together from Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday about Christ's entrance into Jerusalem, the week he spent there teaching in the temple, his arrest, his crucifixion, his death, and apparently now the Easter tomb. You can imagine the discussion going back and forth. Well, what did he mean when he said, you have said so to Pilate? Well, what, how come he let himself be arrested? Why did this happen? Why did Judas betray him? You can imagine they discuss this back and forth. Well, even here, uh, we note one of these ordinary disciplines of these ordinary disciples. Mary sees Jesus alone, and that happens from time to time. But these disciples are together talking over the things that have happened. 
They're talking about Jesus with other disciples. So if you aren't sure about Jesus, if you're seeking to see him, if you have questions, this is a good place to start, talking about Jesus with other disciples. Or maybe you have friends or family who don't yet see Jesus and you'd like them to. This is a great and easy way to start. Just say something like, would you be interested in reading one of the Gospels with me and talking about Jesus? doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to even know all the answers. Just reading together, talking, discussing. Well, Jesus comes alongside these disciples. Apparently, he's a fast hiker and a bold one at that because he interjects himself into the middle of their discussion. What's all this you're discussing while you walk? Cleopas, Cleopas answers, what else? Are you a foreigner? How can you not know what's been going on in Jerusalem? Have you been under a rock or in a cave? Well, he has, but that's beside the point. <laughs> Jesus keeps the conversation going. Well, what's, these, what's these things that have happened? What's it all about? Cleopas's response is complete and bold. If you think about it. The Jesus that he describes has just been put to death, and now he's saying, we think he was a mighty prophet and the one who was going to redeem Israel. He's quite bold in what he's willing to say about Jesus to a complete stranger. And indeed, we could say, here's the gospel preaching of Cleopas. It's, it's full, it's complete. Look at it here in verses 19 through 24. First, you see Cleopas' initial category for understanding Jesus. He was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all people. He's a prophet like Moses, like Isaiah, like Elijah. His words and deeds are powerful and recognized as such by both God and man. Nevertheless, he says, the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. It's interesting, he doesn't suggest any reason why Jesus was put to death. He doesn't say he was put to death as a traitor, he was put to death for sedition or anything like that. He just says it happened. And perhaps this is one of the questions they were discussing, is why did he end up crucified? And indeed, that points to one of the central questions. Why did Jesus himself see death as central to his vocation, to his calling as Messiah? Everyone who was expecting a Messiah in the first century, none of them expected the Messiah to come and die or at least not die right away before he'd set up Israel as a new kingdom. And yet Jesus saw this as central to his mission, more important perhaps even than his words and deeds. Then in verse 21, we have one of these lines of comic irony. These disciples say they crucified him, but we had hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel. All our hopes have been shattered. But they don't realize a slight tweak. They crucified him, and that was how he redeemed Israel. Their hopes have come true, and they don't even realize it. They've not been dashed, but fulfilled. For Christ's death is not defeat, but deliverance. On the cross, the victim is the victor. Freedom has been won. And then it's interesting, the second part of verse 21 there. And besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. They have something ringing in their head from Jesus' teaching that the third day was going to be significant. After all, Jesus told them when they initially set out to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, back in Luke 9, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and on the third day be raised. They have some 
inkling in their head that the third day is significant. When he comes into the temple in the last week, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. They have this idea that the third day is significant. And then they have this simple summary of Easter morning in verses 22 and 23. Some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Do you see that simple summary there? It's, it's really the outline from last week's uh, a sermon. There's the negative evidence. The tomb is empty, the body is not there, and the positive testimony of the angels. The body's not there because he is alive. With a tweak to verse 21 saying, uh, uh, he was the one who redeemed Israel, leaving out the little hoped, this is a perfect statement of the gospel. He covers Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. And yet things have not yet clicked for the disciples. It's like they've dumped out the puzzle on the table, they've counted all the pieces to make sure none are missing, all 599 or however many pieces are in the puzzle, they're all there. They flipped them all face side up, so they've got it all ready, and yet for whatever reason they can't figure out how to put the pieces together. Things have not clicked yet. They can't yet see Jesus. And so now, after quizzing these disciples, Jesus teaches them, and he's going to teach them this. We see Jesus in the Scriptures. We see Jesus in the Scriptures. He begins with a rebuke that I think is more gentle than our translation replies. When he says, oh, foolish ones, it's not you morons, you blockheads. It's a bit more like Christopher Robin, silly old bear. That's kind of what he's saying. Silly old disciples, how slow your hearts are to believe on the basis of all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? There in verse 26, Jesus gets to the heart of the problem, why they can't put the pieces together. Because he juxtaposes four things that in the disciples' minds don't go together. He says it's necessary. He talks about himself as the Christ. He talks about suffering and glory. And in the disciples' minds, those don't go together. You see, necessary suffering, yeah, that makes sense over here on this side. The Christ and glory, yeah, that makes sense on this side, but they don't go together. We can't fit these pieces together. It's interesting, this is the first time in all of Luke's gospel that Jesus refers to himself as the Christ. Other people have called him the Christ, have asked if he's the Christ, but he owns the title himself here. Because he's saying, now that I have died, and risen again, you can understand what I mean by Christ. It may not be what you mean by Christ. And then he brings together these two things that they just can't bring together. Suffering and glory. Jesus' language is not strictly chronological. He's not saying first suffering, then later glory, but he's saying through his suffering, he enters into his glory. His suffering, his crucifixion, his death, and indeed his resurrection are all part of the revelation of his glory. Well, what is Jesus' glory? Throughout the Old Testament, the glory, God's glory refers to, it's a symbol of his presence. It's a symbol or a, a, a term referring to God's presence, his action. So take the book of Exodus, for example. It says, Israel saw God's glory in his mighty signs in Egypt, these plagues on the land. They saw God's glory in his defeat of the Pharaoh at the Red Sea. They see God's glory, Exodus says, when he provides food for them in the wilderness. 
And then in Exodus 24, it says, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the, or into the midst of the cloud. I'm getting it backwards. He called Moses out of the midst of the cloud to come to him. Now the appearance of the Lord's glory was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people. Okay, God's glory is a bit like a cloud. It's a bit like fire. A cloud and fire, you can see both, but you can't grab a hold of them. If you've ever been on a boat going through a cloud or on a mountain going through a cloud, it kind of, it, it's there, but you can't get a hold of it. Fire's the same way. God's glory is his presence. On the other hand, to suffer at its root doesn't necessarily mean physical pain and anguish or mental pain and anguish. At its root, the word suffer means to be acted upon, to have something else do something to you. To suffer is to be the object and recipient of the actions of others. So these two, God's glory, his presence, and suffering or passivity don't seem to go together, at least in the disciples' minds. They expected a Messiah who would do something, perhaps rally an army to drive out the Romans, who would do something. But Jesus is teaching them, no, the Christ reveals God's presence. He reveals glory through his very suffering. Jesus' glory is seen in this, his humble obedience to God, even to the point of death. Christ's glory is seen in how he trusts the Father so that even his final words on the cross are this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus says this isn't plan B. It's not making the best of it. This is what was necessary. Nothing more, nothing less. This is what was necessary. Jesus says the disciples, they, you should have known this all along from what the prophets taught, but they don't. Again, they have all the pieces. They have all of Israel's scripture, but they can't seem to put the pieces together in a way that makes sense of the Messiah. And so beginning with the prophets, or with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a Bible study this must have been. A seven-mile hike with Jesus through the Judean countryside, going through all the scriptures to be taught by Jesus himself. Now, we might read this and wish Luke had thrown in a footnote saying at least a few of the passages Jesus had referenced, a few of the things he said. Okay, we might wish that, but it's actually better that Luke doesn't do that. And I'll tell you why. Excuse me. Jesus isn't teaching the disciples that a few verses here and there scattered throughout the Old Testament pointed forward. He's not saying, remember when Isaiah said, for unto us a child is born, I'm that child, and that's fulfilled, okay, that's it. Certainly that is true, but he says much more than that. Do you see what it says? He interprets all the scriptures as containing things concerning himself. Saying the whole of the Old Testament, all of Israel's scriptures, they point to me. We see Jesus in the scriptures. So the disciples had all the pieces. They knew the story of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and apparent resurrection. And they had Israel's scripture. But they can't make the pieces go together. And what needs to happen is, is, as it were, the two puzzles need to get put together. And then you realize all the pieces fit together. 
Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection are the key to understanding Israel's scripture. And at the same time, Israel's scripture is the key to understanding Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Jesus and Israel's scriptures mutually interpret one another. In the light of Jesus, we understand the Old Testament aright, and in the light of the Old Testament, we understand Jesus aright. We need both to understand either. And so by not telling us this, this, and this verse are the ones that point to me, Jesus is leaving open, and Luke is leaving open to all of us disciples, that when we read any part of the Old Testament to say, how is this concerning Christ? How is this a testimony pointing forward? In the garden, we read of man and woman fall in temptation to put them, trying to put themselves in the place of God. And then as we began this series in Luke, we see Jesus in the wilderness outside of the garden, again facing temptation, but this time living in dependence on God. Man and woman are sent out of the garden, and to cover their shame at being nakedness, God has to kill an animal to make clothes for them. And it hints, it points ahead, that a death is necessary to cover our shame. This whole picture is filled out by all of Leviticus and the, the laws about sacrifice in Exodus. It's saying, here's what's needed to cover our sin. It all points us to the sacrifice of a great high priest who gives himself to make atonement, to cover our shame. The book of Exodus ends with, uh, what is it, 16 chapters about building the tabernacle? It's hard going. Many Bible plans, that's kind of where, how far they get. And you think, well, what can this have to do with Christ? And yet the Gospel of John begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. It's the same word, tabernacle. He set up a tabernacle among us in Jesus. In Abraham, we see a picture of life lived trusting God. We see what it looks like to depend on God even when you're tested to the utmost. And it points us to Christ who is faithful to God even to the last moment. I'm going to have to skip over some of these Old Testament parts. Here, I'll throw out one more because it's a favorite of mine, a bit counterintuitive. Even a figure like foolish Samson, do you see what's painted for you? Foolish Samson is a man who is faithful to his beloved even when she betrays him time and again and then redeems Israel not through his life, but by dying with his arms chained outstretched. Do you see the picture painted for you? The whole Old Testament points forward and teaches us to see Jesus. In Scripture, you see Jesus. But we need to keep moving quickly here. Sorry. It's this, I, could, I almost thought two weeks on this passage, but I thought I want to get to the table because we're celebrating the Lord's table today. So forgive me for my foolishness trying to get too much into one, one Sunday. Okay, they haven't yet seen Jesus. They're persuaded by what he says. Later they say our hearts burned within us. We're convinced this is the right way to read scripture. This makes sense of the Messiah, but they still haven't seen Jesus. They need one more thing or, or some more. And this leads us to the second truth. We see Jesus at the table. We see Jesus at the table. As they draw near to the village, Jesus acts as if he's going to go farther. He's, he's sort of play acting, again, to draw them out, just like he questioned them earlier. Will they invite him in or let him keep going? They do invite him in. Stay with us, for it's towards evening. The day is now far spent. 
The disciples are practicing good hospitality. They invite the stranger into their home. But, get, but again, in Luke's lightly ironic language, their words are described as almost being a prayer. In fact, we regularly sing a hymn at our evening service that begins by paraphrasing the disciples' words. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide, the darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. Say, come, stay with us. Again, just as talking about Jesus together on the road provides a context for Jesus to come alongside them, so the table, the hospitality, provides a context for Jesus to be revealed, and Jesus goes in to stay with them. But then something strange happens. When he was at the table, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Jesus enters it the guest, as, as a guest. He sets down at the table, and yet all of a sudden, as it were, he sits down at the head of the table and takes the role of the Lord of the feast. He breaks the bread. He blesses it. He hands them their own bread. He serves them the meal. Perhaps these dis disciples defer to Jesus in light of his authoritative and masterful exposition of Scripture. They say, truly, this is a teacher. We'll let him serve the meal. Luke might have described this meal in any number of ways, but his language echoes two earlier passages. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and we're told he looks up to heaven, he says a blessing, he breaks the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. The same language, the same verbs. And then again at the Last Supper, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Now again, Jesus is seen at the table. Jesus is revealed not only in Scripture, but through a sign, through an act. Of course, these two particular disciples were not at the Last Supper, so they don't recognize this as a celebration of the Lord's Supper. But they do see Jesus in fellowship at the table, eating with Christ at the table. And that's why we come to the table, is to see Jesus, to eat in fellowship with him. At last, their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? You see, twice they say opened. Their eyes are open to see Jesus as Jesus opens the scripture to them. It's two sides of the same coin. It's not some separate information that we're given alongside, but our eyes are illuminated so that we can see Scripture as it's opened for us. And the result is that their hearts burned within. They were full of excitement. Now, the Christian life does have an element uh, that's emotional. For the disciples of Jesus, there's this experiential dimension. Their hearts are affected, but their minds are not bypassed in the process. Their hearts are affected as they read and discuss Scripture together, as they're convinced about the Messiah. We live in an age of emotional manipulation. So much that passes for news has any, hardly any real content, but just focuses on how we should feel. You're told two sentences about what happened and then paragraphs about the outrage you should feel over it. Think about social media. You're given a preset way to respond, five or six little emojis that say, I feel this, this, or this emotion in response to that. And that's all you have. But that's not the portrait of discipleship that Luke paints for us. The heart should be affected, but through the mind, through reason. Jesus doesn't bowl the disciples over with a dazzling display of his glory, 
but he reasons with them from Scripture. He patiently interprets his word for them. And so one of the hallmark of historic Reformed churches, and indeed any healthy church, is the ministry of the word and sacrament as central to what we say and do. We read all of Scripture as pointing us to Christ, and we come to the Lord's table to see him. Notice they only see Jesus for a moment, then he's gone. They say our hearts burned on the road, but they're not still burning at the table even when they see Jesus. And in that, there's a reminder to us. The goal of the Christian life is not endless emotional high. It's a sort of passing, fleeting experience. If you're a disciple of Jesus, there are times when you see Jesus clearly in the scripture, at the table, and your hearts burn within you. But there's also seasons when you may not feel much at all. That's the nature of the Christian life. Okay? So if you don't feel something every time you come to the Lord's table, that's okay. Something is happening even if you don't feel it. But if you have never felt something, well, that's a bit concerning. So we're wired differently. We all have different emotional makeups, uh, the way things go. When we pray together as a council, uh, there is one elder who will remain nameless who cries almost every time. Uh, and the rest of us don't cry that often while we're praying. But if you have never come to a tear while singing or praying, is your heart warmed by the gospel, by Christ who gave himself for you? It doesn't mean you have to cry every Sunday, but every now and then at least you should be moved. What do we do in these seasons when we don't feel much of anything? We practice what Luke has set before us. We talk about Jesus with fellow disciples. We meditate on his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. We read all of Scripture as a witness to Christ. We practice hospitality and fellowship. We come to the Lord's table to feast with Christ. It's this discipline, this practice, it's punctuated by times when our hearts burn, when we're filled with excitement, but the goal is not an endless burning heart. Okay, I'm a runner. Some days I feel great about running when it's nice and sunny and beautiful view. There's a lot of days when I don't really feel like running, but the discipline of being a runner is doing it whether you feel like it or not. And the spiritual disciplines are like that. One last practice, and then we will conclude. You see in verse 33, their eyes have finally been opened. They see Jesus. The scriptures have been opened to them. Their eyes are opened at the table. They see Jesus in the scripture and at the table. They recognize Jesus, and then he's gone. And what do they do? Do they say, I've done my devotions for the day. I've seen Jesus. Time to go to bed. No, that very hour, it seems like they don't even finish the meal. They leave the dishes on the table. They pack up and hike the seven miles back to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's high up, so it's up, you know, it was downhill coming to Emmaus. That's why they could talk. Now they've got to hike back up to Jerusalem. They arrive now late in the evening. If they left midday, they arrived in time for dinner, six or so. They turn around another three hours. It's now eight, nine. They're back at Jerusalem. Why? Because they cannot help but tell others. To their surprise, they find the other disciples already gathered, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he appeared to Simon. Apparently, Simon saw Jesus, and never uh, Luke doesn't record that for us. But now these disciples, they tell the other disciples what had happened on the road, how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. If you've seen the risen Lord, if you've seen Jesus in the scriptures, if you've seen him at the table, the natural thing to do is to tell others. It doesn't have to be elaborate. You don't have to have all the answers. 
but it is the natural outworking. If this Easter faith is, if you're really convinced of it, what could be more remarkable than this? That death has been defeated. That Christ has come back from the grave. That everything sad is coming untrue because the Lord has risen indeed. What could be more remarkable than that? And if we've seen Jesus in the scriptures and at the table, how can we not share what we've seen with others? It's the natural outworking of the life of discipleship. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to Cleopas and his companion so that we can have this story that models for us the life of discipleship. May we practice what we've seen. May we talk about Jesus with other disciples. Indeed, might you be our favorite topic of conversation. Might we study your word. Might we reflect on your life and ministry and death and resurrection. Might we practice fellowship and hospitality, but above all, might we see you clearly in the scriptures and as we come to the table. Lord, you choose to reveal yourself to us sovereignly, and so we ask that our eyes would be open, that we would see you clearly, even today as we come to the table, as we sing your praise. Our hearts don't burn because we work ourselves up into an emotional state, but because your spirit is at work within us, and so we ask even today as we come to the table, that your spirit would be at work within us, applying the grace and the life and the power of the resurrected Lord to us. Amen.